Major funding for Backstory is provided by an anonymous donor, the National Endowment for the Humanities, the University of Virginia, the Joseph and Robert Cornell Memorial Foundation, and the Arthur Vining Davis Foundations. From Virginia Humanities, this is Backstory. Welcome to Backstory, the show that explains the history behind today's headlines. I'm Joanne Freeman. I'm Ed Ayers. And I'm Brian Ballow. If you're new to the podcast, we're all historians, and each week we explore the history of one topic that's been in the news. If you come by the Backstory office, you'll see that we get sent scores of historical books each year, from scholarly monographs to new biographies to big, bold takes on the American past. But which ones are any good? So today, we're devoting the whole show to talking about the history books we recommend as summer reads. Throughout the show, Brian, Joanne, and I will share our recommendations. Our guests, Liza Mundy and Christina Baker-Klein, will chime in, too. All our recommendations will be on our website at BackstoryRadio.org. Okay, so Brian, start us off. What do you recommend we read this summer? Joanne and Ed, I think you know what I normally read over the summer. Dissertations, monographs, scholarly articles. Uh, (laughs) But because our producer made me read some books that some of you out there might actually be interested in reading, uh, I was forced (laughs) to read two very interesting books. And the first is a book called The Known Citizen. A History of Privacy in Modern America. And it's written by a very fine historian, Sarah Igo at Vanderbilt University. She's a specialist on intellectual history, cultural history, the history of social sciences, public opinion. But don't tune out because this is really a compelling book. This is a book about drawing the line between the individual from the beginning of the 20th century to now, and the society that surrounds that individual. This is a book that really looks at that permeable boundary between the modern man and woman. And by modern, we're talking about 1880s, 1890s, a world in which large organizations and mass communications are beginning to shape more and more lives between that social world uh, and an increasing emphasis on personality, something that is innate, autonomous about every individual. So she starts with the effort to protect people against, wait for it, the Brownie camera, the Kodak camera became a thing at the beginning of the 20th century. And what I hadn't realized was how small they were and how they were used surreptitiously to capture people in poses that they weren't particularly proud of. Uh, There's also a discussion at the beginning of the book, a wonderful discussion about how people's images were used without their permission. So there was a famous court case around the turn of the century where a woman discovered that her image was on 250,000 sacks of flour, and she didn't even know it. (laughs) She just walked into the store, and there she was. So I would call this book an unexpected and surprisingly joyous journey through what it means to be a citizen, where an individual stops and society begins, and that changing set of tensions and boundaries across the 20th century. So, Brian, that was very persuasive, but you found time to read yet a second book this summer? It's Trumpocracy, The Corruption of the American Republic by David Frum. David Frum was actually a speechwriter for President W. Uh, Bush, a Republican. Uh, He's a senior editor on the Atlantic magazine now. And this is a scorching critique of the Trump election and administration. I feel, Brian, as if I've read other things that might say (laughs) something like that. No? How is this book any different? This is a very, very fair question. I think this is different because, remarkably, it doesn't focus on Trump's 
personality. Oh, to be sure, he talks about narcissism. He talks about Trump's past and business dealings, et cetera, et cetera. But this is really a book about the structure of democracy and how Donald Trump takes advantage of it. And he starts by looking around the world and making the broad generalization, which I think is largely true, that from roughly 1975 to 2000, democracy was on the march. Lots of totalitarian governments fell and lots of democracies were created. But from 2000 to the present time, it hasn't been so great for democracy. And what's really chilling is he points out that a lot of the democracies that are being undermined still have voting. People still go to the polls. But for a whole variety of reasons, their votes just don't count. So he moves from this international context to say that until 2016, Americans viewed this as a foreign problem, or at least a problem of foreign relations. But it came home with a vengeance in 2016. The fact we identifies that can be America's great advantage, its pluralism, is Trump's trump card, if you will. He points to Trump's remarkable ability to pit groups of Americans against each other. And he claims that Trump, that may be his only great skill and talent, is mobilizing Hmm. this kind of negativity, this kind of oppositional sense that some other group is getting ahead of me along racial lines, along gendered lines, and of course, along lines of Americans versus uh, immigrants. So I think it's really a book worth reading. I'll just throw in one more factor that I think is relatively distinctive from calls out Trump's enablers. He calls out the many, many, mainly Republicans who allow Trump Uh, to be successful in what he is doing. And I think we've been far too quiet about um, the leader of the Senate, the leader of the House, about the Republican Party, and about... uh, We have heard a lot about Fox News, to be sure, uh, a sector of mass communications that is all Trump all the time. Um, But I think we've heard too little about those parts of the American political system that have enabled Trump to do what he is doing to democracy. As well as sharing our own favorite reads this week, we've also invited other writers to share their picks of the best books out there. Liza Mundy is author of Code Girls, the untold story of the American women codebreakers of World War II. And here she is with three recommendations of her favorite historical nonfiction, starting with a reading of Radium Girls. From the Radium Girls by Kate Moore. Radium, it was a wonder element. Everyone knew that. Catherine had read all about it in magazines and newspapers, which were forever extolling its virtues and advertising new radium products for sale. But they were all far too expensive for a girl of Catherine's humble origins. She had never seen it up close before. It was the most valuable substance on earth, selling for $120,000 for a single gram, 2.2 million in today's values. To her delight, It was even more beautiful than she had imagined. Each dial painter had her own supply. She mixed her own paint, dabbing in a little radium powder in a small white crucible and adding a dash of water in a gum arabic adhesive, a combination that created a greenish white luminous paint, which went under the name Undark. Catherine could see that the powder got everywhere. There was dust all over the studio. Even as she watched, little puffs of it seemed to hover in the air before settling on the shoulders or hair of a dial painter at work. To her astonishment, 
it made the girls themselves gleam. It was extraordinary to read about what we thought radium could do for people. You know, it's so hard for us to believe now, yeah, people were supposed to drink radium water. It was supposed to be like vitamin water. But yet at the same time, these women's bosses, they began to know that uh, that the radium was in fact lethal and they didn't act. And the extraordinary disregard uh, for the young women's health and lives is outrageous. It is this extraordinary, heroic, inspiring, narrative that is also an absolutely riveting read. Fly Girls. How Five Daring Women Defied All Odds and Made Aviation History by Keith O'Brien. In 1926, a new generation of female pilots was emerging, and they refused to be pigeonholed, mocked, or excluded. Instead, they united to fight the men in a singular moment in American history, when air races in open cockpit planes attracted bigger crowds than opening day at Yankee Stadium and an entire Sunday of NFL football games combined. These were no sweethearts, no ladybirds. If the women aviators had to have a name, they were fly girls, a term used in the 1920s to describe female pilots and, more broadly, young women who refused to live by the old rules, appearing bold and almost dangerous as a result. As one newspaper put it in the mid-1920s, the people are exhorted to swat the fly but it is safer to keep your hands off the fly girl. Fly Girls is a wonderful book that's coming out at the beginning of August. I highly recommend it. It's the fascinating story, again, of a collective group of women working together, even as they were competing, flying in the United States in the really sort of what's called the golden age of flight in the 1920s and 30s. It was not just exciting and and new and innovative, but it was incredibly dangerous. Pieces are literally kind of falling off and they're hanging on to them or tying them down with cord. And, uh, and of course, we've all heard of Amelia Earhart, and she's the figure of fascination. They're always sort of, you know, new uh, kerfluffles when somebody purports to have found what happened to her. But what's so fascinating about this book is it's, she is put in context, and we understand that she was one of— um, of a, a group of very brave, very daring and dashing women flyers who were barnstorming around the country first to try to win the right to compete in races that were, you know, heavily attended, that were often very dramatic, but that were often male only. Uh, and so how the women both competed with each other but worked together to win the right to compete in these male-only races. And ultimately, it's organized around... Um, what's called the most prestigious and grueling of these contests, which was the Bendix Trophy Race. And in that race, the ultimate challenge was not just to win the right to compete, but to compete against the men and try to win. And what is so wonderful about this, and it's, I think all of the books I'm recommending have this in common, is that it's women working together to move us forward. On March 16, 1970, Newsweek magazine hit the newsstands with a cover story on the fledgling feminist movement called Women in Revolt. The bright yellow cover pictured a naked woman in red silhouette, her head thrown back, provocatively thrusting her fist through a token blue female sex symbol. As the first copies went on sale that Monday morning, 46 female employees of Newsweek announced that we, too, were in revolt. We had just filed a complaint with the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, charging that we had been systematically discriminated against in both hiring and promotion, and forced to assume a subsidiary role 
simply because we were women. It was the first time women in the media had sued on the grounds of sex discrimination. The third book I recommend is called Good Girls Revolt. It is a wonderful narrative by a writer I admire enormously, Lynn Povich. It came out about five or six years ago. It's a wonderful story of an enraging story of women battling for equal treatment in the workplace, in this case, the journalistic workplace. They rise up on the very day that Newsweek publishes this cover story about the feminist movement, uh, and and the magazine has has chosen an outside writer to write that story, uh, you know, sort of ignoring all of the extraordinary talents of the women in its own newsroom. It's a very important book to me because I'm a journalist also, and I came into the journalism workplace in the 1990s, and I was the beneficiary of Lynn and other women who bravely filed class action lawsuits to try and begin to change the culture of these journalistic workplaces. And this book, I think, is predictive of what has come out in the Me Too movement. It describes outrageous, entrenched practices in newsrooms in which not only were women just hired as researchers and assistants to the male journalists who would get the bylines, but women were treated by uh, these male journalists as office wives and as, as sexual partners. And often the men were recruited and hired with the promise that these women would be available to them in newsrooms. And so I think as we all try to understand what's going on today and where the Me Too movement came from and, and you know, why this was so pervasive, it's really useful to look back at Lynn's book and, and understand just how accepted and entrenched some of these practices were. Liza Mundy there, and coming up later in the show, New York Times bestselling novelist Christina Baker Klein will give her tips of the best historical novels out there. Charles Fraser's first novel, Cold Mountain, enjoyed the kind of success writers dream of, a popular and critical hit. It won the 1997 National Book Award and has sold in the millions. And that's not to mention serving as the basis for an Academy Award-winning movie. Two decades later, Fraser has returned to the theme of the Civil War with Verena. It's a fictional account of the life of Verena Howell Davis, wife of Jefferson Davis, the first and only president of the Confederacy. Verena married at 18. Jefferson Davis was 19 years her senior, and from the beginning she had doubts about the character of her somewhat melancholy and remote husband, and about the future of the South under his leadership. V laughed and said, you make it sound like chance, roll of the dice, but that's not the case. She talked a while developing an argument that they, she and Jeff, and the culture at large had made bad choices one by one, spaced out over time, so that they felt individual, but actually they accumulated choices of convenience and conviction, choices coincident with the people they lived among, following the general culture and the overriding matter of economics, money and its distribution, fair or not, never acknowledging that the general culture is often stupid or evil and would vote out God in favor of the devil if he fed them back their hate and fear in a way that made them feel righteous. After years of loss and reflection, your old deluded decisions click together like the works of a watch packed tight within its case. Many tiny turning interlocking wheels, each one bristling sharp-toothed with machine-cut gears. The force of every decision transferring gear to gear, wheel to wheel, each one motivating a larger energy, going in no direction but steep downward to darkness at an increasing pitch. And then one morning, the world resembles the wake of Noah's flood, stretching unrecognizable to the horizon, and you wonder how you got there. 
I spoke to Charles Frazier about his new novel and about Verena Howell Davis, First Lady of the Confederacy. Charles, thanks very much for joining us today. Oh, glad to be here. So, like four million other people, I very much enjoyed Coal Mountain, and I was glad to see you return to the Civil War. What is it about that Civil War that makes you think it's worth writing another book about? Oh, I really thought I would never go back to that period at all. Wasn't looking for an idea uh, related to the Civil War, any of that kind of thing, and and just ran across a few details of Verena Howell Davis's life and was kind of hooked by this woman who did so many unexpected things. The first one was that after uh, Jefferson Davis died in 1889, and she was, uh, I think, 61 at the time, um, she packed her bags and moved to New York City and never came back. You have to say that Verena Howell Davis is not the person most people would expect when they open up your novel. What do you think will surprise people the most? Well, uh, I think some of the things that surprised me, that she for example, was very much against secession. She told Mary Chestnut, her friend, that uh, she knew what was going to happen before it happened. The South was going to secede. They were going to make Jefferson Davis president, and it was going to be a big disaster for everybody. She thought he had the wrong uh, personality for it. Mm -hmm. When she moved to New York, she said uh, publicly that the right side won the war, which, uh, you know, was picked up in the Southern papers. She became friends with Julia Grant, the widow of Ulysses S. Grant, and they went on carriage rides in Central Park together, went to restaurants, uh, kind of prominent restaurants where they would be seen and their friendship would be commented on in the newspapers. That, again, was, uh, was not taken well by the South. Some of this time, her money was pretty tight. Richmond offered her a house to live in for the rest of her life for free. She declined. Um, at some point, she said uh, the next time she went to Richmond would be feet first in a box. And it was, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. She's buried there, which I thought that was a sad coda that they did take her back to Richmond to be buried, and, and her tombstone is just a plaque on the side of her husband's monument. Well, the thing that intrigued me about her, I mean, and I, I didn't see her as a hero when I started writing the book. I didn't see her as a hero at the end. But what interested me in her as a character is that as she grew older, she was reckoning with the causes of the losses in her life personally and for the country uh, at large. And she was not doing what so many Southerners did, you know, dig their heels in, look back at the past as this golden age, the lost cause, the... You know, all of that stuff. She was up in New York moving forward in her life, living in the modern world, not trying to relive and glorify a past that she did not find uh, uh, very glorious. That I liked in a, in a, a character who's 80 years old at the beginning of the book, um, who's still, uh, still interested in the world, still wanting to think forward and move forward in the world. You know, one thing that may surprise readers is that uh, you portray Verena partaking of opium quite frequently and in different forms and with some relief and satisfaction. Now, we know that in the post-war South, that was not uncommon among white Southern women. Do you have reason to think that Verena Davis actually did that? She mentions it some in, in letters and things. Her friend Mary Chestnut mentions it a lot um, in her book. Uh, and I, I did a good bit of reading about uh, about opiates and women, especially middle and up, upper class women that, um, you know, from age about 13 on was the cure for everything that ailed them, according to most doctors. So uh, as I read more and more about her life, there were occasions that really happened that I thought, you know, if you just add some morphine or laudanum to this scene, her behavior is much more explainable. She or Jefferson or both of them had De Quincey's Confessions of an English Opium Eater checked out of the Library of Congress for six weeks at some point. Um, they were interested in the topic. I just used the touches of, uh, of opiate use in her record and then kind of um, expanded with... Um, 
opiate use among women in general during that right. period. I love the scene <clears throat> at Jefferson Davis's inauguration where she's standing there in a morphine daze, dreading what's going to follow. It's a, another great scene. Well, to, you know that she actually left his speech halfway through was an interesting little little fact uh, of her life. I imagine quite a few people were tempted to, but it <laughs> yeah. is in, in those kind yeah. of details. And I have to say that your evocation of place is remarkable. I live in Richmond as well as in Charlottesville, and uh, I can see the places uh, that you're evoking. Um, you know, it's clear that you've been to the Gray House, as you call what <laughs> is grandiloquently called the White House of the Confederacy and Hollywood Cemetery and Shaco Bottom and all those places. So how do you go about soaking up th- that historical context? It's, it's, it's really um, uh, unstructured. I just go and walk around and uh, hang out and I drove the route that she would have taken. You could get pretty close to it by, because people mentioned in their journals tam- names of towns and that kind of thing. I drove the route from Richmond down to Charlotte and, and then through South Carolina and Georgia down to Irwinville where she was captured. You know, and just get out of the car, walk around, think about, okay, if they were camping out, if it was raining and they were camping out here, what would they be doing? She lived in... Um, in the Marlebone section of London for a while after the war, a lot of that time by herself. And um, one of the buildings she had an apartment in still there. So just walking through that part of London, I don't know that anything concrete appears in the book from that, but um, but it you know just helps me occupy the, the space that the character occupied. You mentioned before that you let the story take you where it leads. And strangely, that's the way I write history as well. I don't really know. It's the concreteness of a quotation or something that is a launching point. It's not like some architectural point you want to make. But I do notice that you write eloquently about memory, about uh, looping and, and, uh, and echoing. Um, and in many ways, this book seems to me to be a book about memory as much as it is about action in the moment. Uh, most of the things that are happening, she's recalling in, in one way or another. So could you maybe talk about that and perhaps about the way that the Civil War lives in American memory? Yeah, well, the, the first time I, when I started working on this book, the first time I just wrote on a three by five card, the things I wanted to keep touching on over and over in the book. Memory was the first thing I wrote down. But in thinking about memory, I wanted it to loop. I didn't want a linear uh, kind of structure for it. I wanted it to follow not calendar, but a pattern of memory of where one thing kicks off another thing and, oh, didn't understand this, you've got to go back and pick up this other thing. And so that's a, that's a, a built into a lot of the book, into the very structure of the book, is memory patterns. But the memory of that war, of of the causes of the war, the primary cause of the war, slavery, all of that is that we're still living with, the discussions of monuments and flags and, and that sort of thing the past years, um, you know, that we seem not to be able to... Um, um, to move on from that war. It's like it's, uh, you know, baked into the shape of our, of our culture. I was talking to Charles Frazier, and his new novel, Verena, is out now. And Charles Fraser's novel is also the book of the month on Bookstory, Backstory's online book club for people who love history as much as we do. Interested in joining the club? Visit backstoryradio.org slash bookstory. Okay, now, Ed, 
I hear a drum roll. <laughs> what are your summer reading recommendations? Well, you know, it's a really interesting time because a lot of people are sort of reimagining the 19th century. I was drawn to the most traditional of all historical forms, the biography. And there is a new one of Henry David Thoreau, who you might think that we would have figured out by now, but I saw him through entirely new eyes after reading this biography by Laura Dassau Walls, who's a professor at Notre Dame. It's over 600 pages for what was, in fact, a relatively brief and quite circumscribed life. You know, uh, we all know about Walden and living in the woods, and we know that he wrote an essay about civil disobedience uh, after refusing to pay his tax to support the Mexican War. But otherwise, Henry David Thoreau seems like a sort of a misty character. <laughs> you know, people don't really know what to make of this guy. And she tells us that he was widely unrecognized in his time. He bought 500 copies of Walden and still had 480 of them oh. <laughs> years later. <laughs> that hurts. <laughs> I know. Uh, and he dies uh, at the age of 44 uh, very early in the Civil War before he's had a chance to see that great experiment of the American Revolution to come to some kind of consummation. So it's a truncated life in chronologically, but it's also a very circumscribed life geographically. He is a child of that part of New England and almost nowhere else. So for him to be able to see America from the window of that shanty at Walden Pond uh, it's one of the great intellectual miracles of American history. And what I loved about it is the way that she really places him, well, in American history. And she had this uh, passage that I thought was great. 200 years ago, American democracy still felt raw, experimental, and uncertain, especially in Concord, where America was a family affair, earned by one generation about to pass to the next. Thoreau felt the weight of that responsibility more than most. And when he returned home from college, he set about re-examining the roots of democracy for himself. For it was clear to him that the American Revolution was incomplete. Inequality was rife, materialism was rampant, and the American economy was wholly dependent on slavery. Yet, in a terrible irony, his elders seemed content to let this state of things, from which they all benefited, continue. No, they were not to be trusted. He must try the experiment for himself. I love that because, Joanna, it reminds me that the American Revolution was not very long yeah. before Thoreau mm. and the Transcendentalists right. and how much it left unsettled. She talks right. elsewhere about how the Anthropocene moment, <laughs> uh, the moment when humans dominated the world, began during Thoreau's brief lifetime and how Walden was first intersected by one train. But by the time that he died in 1862, there would be 22 trains a day in Concord, Massachusetts. Mm -hmm. wow. And so I think that the way that she weaves together, I think her big contribution is we tend to either think of Thoreau as the civil disobedient citizen, uh, supporting John Brown and, and sort of resisting the powers, or the guy living out in the woods all by himself. And she shows that he was both a pioneer in American environmentalism Scientists still use his records of when the flowers were blooming in Concord as an index of how much climate change is changing uh, the environment. But people still have not found a more authentic American voice in favor of individual conscience than civil disobedience. So to me, she just brought this guy who is, you know, uh, assigned to high school juniors all across the country, and they have to read a little bit of this. And it's easy to trivialize him. She made him seem dangerous and important. Well, you've definitely persuaded me there, Ed, to pick up a 600-page book in the summer, which is saying something, but what do you have for us next? <laughs> So I decided to read two books about history or set in history that are not written by GASP historians uh, <laughs> and, in fact, are works of fiction. Colson Whitehead's The Underground Railroad and George Saunders's Lincoln in the Bardo. They're not what we usually think of as historical novels, uh, rich in costumes and personalities, but instead are very bold, experimental reimagining of things that we either think that we know or something we've never thought about very much at all. So the thing that we think that we know is Colson Whitehead's novel, The Underground Railroad. 
And what he does is he imagines that that was a real thing, that there actually was an underground railroad that somehow spirited enslaved people from the Deep South to the freedom of the North. The other book is George Saunders's Lincoln and the Bardo, which is an imagining of the grieving of Lincoln, who loses his young son, Willie, in the midst of the immense suffering of the American Civil War. And the entirety of that novel is set in a cemetery in Washington, D.C., and it's peopled, if I may use that phrase, with the spirits of the other people who are buried in that graveyard and who are trapped in the bardo, this kind of liminal space between death and life in which people have to try to get right with the sins that they they committed during lifetime before they can pass on to the afterlife. And so, It's hard to imagine two more audacious novels than these two, but they were both remarkably powerful. From Lincoln in the Bardo by George Saunders Mouth at the worm's ear, father said, We have loved each other well, dear Willie, but now, for reasons we cannot understand, that bond has been broken. But our bond can never be broken. As long as I live, you will always be with me, child. Then let out a sob. Dear father, crying. That was hard to see. And no matter how I patted and kissed and made to console, it did no... You were a joy, he said. Please know that. Know that you were a joy to us. Every minute, every season, you were a... You did a good job. A good job of being a pleasure to know. From The Underground Railroad by Colson Whitehead The stairs led onto a small platform. The black mouths of the gigantic tunnel opened at either end. It must have been twenty feet tall, walls lined with dark and light-colored stones in an alternating pattern. The sheer industry that had made such a project possible. Cora and Caesar noticed the rails. Two steel rails ran the visible length of the tunnel, pinned into the dirt by wooden cross-ties. The steel ran south and north, presumably, springing from some inconceivable source and shooting toward a miraculous terminus. Someone had been thoughtful enough to arrange a small bench on the platform. Cora felt dizzy and sat down. Caesar could scarcely speak. How far does the tunnel extend? Lumbly shrugged. Far enough for you. Earlier in the show, we heard writer Liza Mundy's recommendations for historical nonfiction. But what about historical fiction? Christina Baker Klein is the author of seven novels, and her most recent book, A Piece of the World has just won the 2018 New England Society Book Award. From Wide Sargasso Sea by Jean Brees. They knew that he was in Jamaica when his father and his brother died, Grace Poole said. He inherited everything, but he was a wealthy man before that. Some people are fortunate, they said and there were hints about the woman he brought back to England with him. Next day, Mrs. F. wanted to see me, and she complained about gossip. I don't allow gossip. I told you that when you came. Servants will talk, and you can't stop them, I said. And I am not certain that the situation will suit me, madam. First, when I answered your advertisement, you said that the person I had to look after was not a young girl. I asked if she was an old woman, and you said no. Now that I see her, I don't know what to think. She sits shivering and she's so thin. If she dies on my hands, who will get the blame? I love The Wide Sargasso Sea by Jean Rhys. I read it as a teenager and then again as a young adult. I've gone back to it again and again. It's on my small 
shelf of favorite books. It is a feminist, anti-colonialist reworking, essentially, of one storyline in Jane Eyre. Uh, Jane Eyre, of course, is uh, a classic British novel. And there was this madwoman in the attic named Bertha. But in the Wide Sargasso Sea, Jean Rhys imagines her life before she got to England and then after as well. And what led up to it uh, was that she was essentially a Creole woman who was discriminated against in many ways. And uh, so there's this sort of story about what happens um, that we never get in Jane Eyre from the other perspectives. Number two, this novel anticipated the novels of rediscovery or rehabilitation that are now quite popular. For example, The Paris Wife, Z, a novel about Zelda Fitzgerald, minor characters um, or figures in history and in novels who haven't had their place in the sun um, are now quite popular, but this was a very early version of that. When Emil Zukowski was lured to the Metropole as chef de cuisine in 1912, he was given command of a seasoned staff and a sizable kitchen. In addition, he had the most celebrated larder east of Vienna. On his spice shelves was a compendium of the world's predilections, and in his cooler, a comprehensive survey of birds and beasts hanging from hooks by their feet. As such... One might naturally leap to the conclusion that 1912 had been a perfect year in which to measure a chef's talents. But in a period of abundance, any half-wit with a spoon can please a palate. One must instead look to a period of want. And what provides better want than war? Book number two is A Gentleman in Moscow by Amor Tolls. This is a Russian epic. I love Russian literature, and Tolstoy's Anna Karenina, I think, is probably the greatest novel ever written. I love that novel so much and have read it and revisited it many times. Amor Tolls has a deceptively light touch. It is set in a hotel. He, The very first scene of the novel is the Count entering the hotel through these revolving doors. And the very final scene, I shouldn't say this, but I I don't think it gives too much away, has him leaving the hotel through those same doors. It is just a perfectly rendered story of what it's like to be set in one place. And uh, everything that happens to this character comes from the outside, but he creates a whole world there. From Pachinko by Min Jin Lee. November 1932. The winter following Japan's invasion of Manchuria was a difficult one. Biting winds sheared through the small boarding house and the women stuffed cotton in between the fabric layers of their garments. This thing called the Depression was found everywhere in the world, the lodgers frequently said during meals repeating what they'd overheard from the men at the market who could read newspapers. Poor Americans were as hungry as the poor Russians and the poor Chinese. In the name of the emperor, even ordinary Japanese went without. No doubt the canny and hardy had survived that winter, but the shameful reports of children going to bed and not waking up Girls selling their innocence for a bowl of wheat noodles, and the elderly stealing away quietly to die so the young could eat, were far too plentiful. My third novel is Pachinko by Min Jin Lee, which I read about a month ago and was completely blown away by. What I love about this novel is that it's about four generations of an ethnic Korean family who, in different ways over the years, have to confront, essentially, racism uh, in Japan. Uh, It begins in Japanese-occupied Korea in the early 20th century, and it goes all the way up through um, the 1980s when this Korean family has 
emigrated to Japan. So the first thing I love about this novel is that I learned about a history, a world that I never fully understood before. And I think this is one of the great gifts that novels give us, which is that you want to read about these characters. And as you read about the characters, you learn what it really felt like to live through an important uh, historical period that you might not have understood. It swept me up in this different world, and I, too, knew almost nothing about it. I was lucky to do an event with Min Jin Lee a couple of months ago, and I had just finished the book, so I had I had hearts in my eyes. I was like, I felt like a fangirl. But um, it was really interesting to hear how long the book had taken her over a decade to write and how difficult it was for her to find the heart of the story. Um, she had to keep approaching it from different angles. And her goal always, and I think this is the goal of the novelist that we're, we're all trying to realize, um, was to to add flesh and blood to these stories about great mo- movements, social change, um, and injustice. Christina Baker-Klein with her three recommendations of historical novels. Okay, Joanne, this is the moment we've all been waiting for. Hit us with your recommendations for our summer reads. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) I'll talk about my recommendations. Um, One of them is a book titled Women and Power, A Manifesto by Mary Beard. Uh, Mary Beard is a classicist at Cambridge and is very respected in her field, but she's also a very public presence. I know that she's done a number of different TV shows and British television. She is very much someone who comes forward and discusses a lot of sort of broader issues that go beyond. I've read magazine articles about her. (laughs) Indeed. There's a really well-known one in The New Yorker about how she combats trolls on social media that she she holds forth and sort tries to swat down people who try to attack particularly actually women on social media and all of that ties into what she does with this book but this is actually two lectures that she has strung together the book consists of a lecture from 2014 and another from 2017 so they predate the me too moment that we're in but they've very much address some of the same kinds of issues. And in essence, what she does is she goes back in time, way back in time, to ancient Greece and works her way forward. And what she's interested in looking at is the many ways in which women's voices have been silenced in public. The ways in which, in a sense, having a public voice was always assumed to be male. Both historically speaking, and I guess in a literary kind of a way too, she looks at the the ways in which, in a sense, having a public voice for so long was assumed to be male. Uh, And she exposes that in a variety of different ways that I really think does um, make you step back and think beyond a sort of superficial way of going, yeah, (laughs) (laughs) women are being repressed, yeah. But it it, it gets you to think about what you expect in a public voice or what you don't expect in a public voice. So is she finding women's voices in the distant past? She, she goes all the way back. She goes back as far as the Odyssey and brings out an example in the Odyssey of Penelope, the wife of Odysseus, mm-hmm. who comes in and makes a statement about her son singing a song that's too sad. He, she wants something upbeat. And he tells her to go back to her, her knitting <laughs> or her sewing or whatever it is she's supposed to be doing because she's not supposed to be in a public space holding forth on what it is she wants. And she, she sort of works her way through. She starts that far back, but she works her way forward. And she talks about and tries to expose all the ways in which um, all of us, including her, have expectations about what the public voice is supposed to sound like and the many ways in which women's voices for so long weren't assumed to fit in there. She says at one point, it's still hard for me to imagine someone like me (laughs) in my role. I don't want to be parochial, but what's this have to do with the United States? (laughs) Well, it has to do with women (laughs) and and the public. So uh, to me, you know, it was a book uh, as... A, an American woman right now certainly spoke to me. Um, you know, it, it's historical in the sense that it's talking about historical structures and how they worked over time. But 
it's also very much of the present. And I think that's very much what she tries to do in her work is to be true to the past, kind of in the same way that you were just talking about, Ed, with right, this right. historical fiction, to be true to the past, but also to plant it firmly in the present and show how those things are interconnected. Is there something else you have for us, Joanne? I do indeed. And in a sense, this is another book that has some relevance to the present, although it is a study of the past. Uh, and this is a book called Democracy Schools, The Rise of Public Education in America by Johann Niem. What he does in this book, and I guess why it sort of resonated for me now is, he's looking at the rise of public education in America and the different reasons why people felt that public education was important. And in reconstructing that, it's a wonderful reminder of the many things that public education does. And I think it's an important read, in a sense, at this particular moment when there's so much discussion and so much smacking at and reconfiguring of public mm -hmm. education. Um, to remember the, the ways in which it was seen, on the one hand, as training people to be good citizens of a republic and training people to understand how a democracy works by seeing the process of creating a local school and having people be engaged with a local school, that on both levels, it was assumed that public education was really fundamental to the, the working of a democratic republic. You know, I guess what I really like about the book is the way in which, and I guess in a sense, this reflects back <laughs> to the books, Ed, that you were talking about, and as a matter of fact, as well to the books that you were talking about, Brian, is in all of these cases, it takes you to a place where you're thinking about the human underpinnings, the, the real life underpinnings of things that we either take for granted or assume are structures, things that we don't often pause to think about in that kind of a human grounded real way. And I think all of the books we've talked about in one way or another are doing that very thing. That's going to do it for us today. Details of all the books discussed on the show will be on our website, BackstoryRadio.org. And you can keep the conversation going online by sending an email to Backstory at Virginia.edu. We're also on Facebook and Twitter, at Backstory Radio. Whatever you do, don't be a stranger. This episode of Backstory was produced by David Stenhouse, Nina Ernest, and Ramona Martinez. Jamal Milner is our technical director, Diana Williams is our digital editor, and Joey Thompson and Monica Blair are our researchers. Our readers were James Scales and Jolie Milner. Additional help came from Anjali Bishosh, Sam Blumstein, Hannah Cho, Emma Gregg, and Gabriel Hunter Chang. Our theme song was written by Nick Thorburn. Other music in the episode came from Ketza, Poddington Bear, and Jazar. Backstory is produced at Virginia Humanities. Major support is provided by an anonymous donor, the National Endowment for the Humanities, the Provost Office at the University of Virginia, the Joseph and Robert Cornell Memorial Foundation, and the Arthur Vining Davis Foundations. Additional support is provided by the Tomato Fund, cultivating fresh ideas in the arts, the humanities, and the environment. Brian Ballow is Professor of History at the University of Virginia. Ed Ayers is Professor of the Humanities and President Emeritus of the University of Richmond. Joanne Freeman is Professor of History and American Studies at Yale University. Nathan Connolly is the Herbert Baxter Adams Associate Professor of History at the Johns Hopkins University. Backstory was created by Andrew Wyndham for Virginia Humanities. <laughs>